Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with breaking news in our world lead. Any moment, President Biden will address the nation from the White House about the chaotic and rapidly deteriorating situation in Afghanistan. Today, the Pentagon announced nearly 1,000 additional U.S. forces heading into that nation's capital of Kabul. That makes more than 6,000 now in total. Just to be clear, after ordering the withdrawal of most of the 2,500 service members who were in Afghanistan when President Biden took office. Mr. Biden is now ordering more than double that to go back into the country to help Americans and others escape. A clear indication of inept planning and a suggestion that President Biden was perhaps not heeding the advice of the national security and intelligence experts who told him that the Afghan government could fall quite quickly, as was predicted and as we covered months ago. Many of the American troops will be there to help manage desperate scenes such as this one. Thousands of Afghans swarming the Kabul airport and attempting to flee the country as the Taliban take full control. The madness at points devolving into violence. Officials telling CNN that U.S. forces shot and killed two armed Afghan men who fired on them at the airport. Videos also show Afghans running toward departing Air Force C-130s, trying to grab a hold of the airplane fuselage. As the planes start taking off, presumably these Afghans desperate to escape before experiencing the wrath of the Taliban. Even more horrifying and graphic, we should warn, are other video clips that appear to show bodies falling to the ground from a U.S. Air Force plane as the plane gains altitude. President Biden reportedly told his advisors he wanted to avoid tragic and humiliating images like those from the fall of Saigon after the humiliating U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam. Biden now has images as part of his legacy that are arguably far worse. Beyond the issue of the U.S. withdrawal is how the U.S. has withdrawn incompetently and ignoring those who for months have talked about the need to get Americans and allies out before leaving. Yesterday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken kept changing the subject to the larger issue of the continued U.S. presence, refusing to engage with me in detail about how the withdrawal has been conducted, with Americans and U.S. allies fearing for their lives as Afghanistan fell in just days. That status quo was not sustainable. Uh, Like it or not, uh, there was an agreement that the forces would come out on May 1st. From the perspective of our strategic competitors around the world, there's nothing they would like more than to see us in Afghanistan for another 5, 10, 20 years. It's simply not in the national interest. That May 1st deadline that Secretary Blinken just referred to is a reference to the fact that Biden claims He had to work with the deal that the former president, Mr. Trump, made with the Taliban. Until a few days ago, Trump allies in the Republican Party, in fact, were boasting about that deal and attacking Biden for extending the U.S. troop presence beyond the May deadline. Trump, in fact, bragged about having boxed Biden in. I started the process. All the troops are coming back home. They couldn't stop the press. 21 years is enough, don't we think? 21 years. They couldn't stop the process. They wanted to, but it was very tough to stop the process. 
Beyond the nihilistic political face swap, Trump allies blaming Biden, Biden allies blaming Trump, is a tragedy and a catastrophe of epic proportions, one years, decades really, in the making. One that will have hideous consequences for Afghan girls and women, boys and men, who will now be subject to an antiquated and barbaric system of Taliban justice and society. CNN's Clarissa Ward is live for us in the Afghan capital of Kabul, but we're going to start right now with CNN's Caitlin Collins live at the White House. Caitlin, do we have any idea what the president is expected to say? Is he going to take any ownership for this disaster? Well, Jake, that remains to be seen, but we will hear from the president any minute now. They just called reporters to gather to go into the room for those remarks. And we should note that President Biden actually returned to the White House just to give this speech. He had been at Camp David monitoring the situation from there. The White House issuing those photos over the weekend, showing a lone president in the room being briefed by his national security team virtually. And of course, there are many questions facing the White House over how this evacuation house proceeded, because some of the talking points that they have circulated among their Democratic allies on Capitol Hill have said that they believe that what you are seeing right now with this Taliban takeover of Kabul was a possibility, but not inevitable. Of course, the president was very confident when he said it was not inevitable to reporters just about six weeks ago, saying it was highly unlikely that the Taliban was going to be running everything. And of course, we have now seen how they have overrun Afghanistan and Afghanistan's former president has now fled the country within a matter of hours of that happening. So major questions are facing the president over how this was executed, Jake. You know, we do expect him to defend the idea that this was executed at all because we know this was a path he had been intent on pursuing ever since he took office. Oh, even before that, he's never supported this war beyond the original mission of defeating al-Qaeda. Uh, Caitlin, I know you need to go back and go into the room there to, to, for the president's uh, address. Uh, let's bring in CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward, live for us uh, in the Afghan capital of Kabul. Clarissa, how rapidly is the this, is this situation deteriorating there? I mean, no one can quite keep things straight, Jake. It's just devolving so quickly, changing so rapidly. The Taliban does have a pretty strong grip on security in the capital. They have fighters at every street corner. But for the majority of Afghans who woke up this morning to a new chapter in the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, there is a huge range of emotions. There's shock, there's horror, there's heartbreak, there's terror, there's desperation, and yes, even some jubilation. Take a look. As soon as we leave our compound, it's clear who is now in charge. Taliban fighters have flooded the capital. Smiling and victorious, they took this city of six million people in a matter of hours, barely firing a shot. This is a sight I honestly thought I would never see. Scores of Taliban fighters and just behind us, the U.S. Embassy compound. Some carry American weapons. They tell us they're here to maintain law and order. Everything is under control. Everything will be fine, the commander says. Nobody should worry. What's your message to America right now? America already spent enough time in Afghanistan. They need to leave, he tells us. They already lost lots of lives and lots of money. People come up to them to pose for photographs. They're just chanting death to America, but they seem friendly at the same time. It's utterly bizarre. Almost everywhere we go, it seems the Taliban want to talk. A lot of people are very frightened that you might engage in 
revenge attacks against security forces. Alhamdulillah. Since yesterday, we've proved that nothing will happen, and we give assurance to everyone that they will be safe, Mauli Murtaza tells us, and we follow our leaders. Once we make a promise, we stick to it. Maintaining law and order is top of that list of promises. At the presidential palace, the Taliban are now guarding the gate. They say they're here to fill the vacuum left when the government fled. But the welcoming spirit only extends so far, and my presence soon creates tension. They've just told me to stand to the side because I'm a woman. The Taliban have yet to implement their draconian version of Islamic law, but many are already preparing for it. You can see this beauty salon and many others have actually painted over images on their storefronts of uncovered women. Taliban commander Assad Masood Khistani says Islamic rule will be implemented gradually. How will you protect women? Because many women are afraid they will not be allowed to go to school, they will not be allowed to work. Uh, the, the female, the woman, uh, can uh, continue their life as, uh, and we will not say anything for them. They can go to the school, they can continue their education but with Islamic hijab. So like I'm wearing? Uh, not like you, but uh, covering their faces as well. Cover the face? Yeah. So you mean niqab? Yeah. Niqab. Why do they have to cover their face? Because it is in our Islam. Is it in Islam, though, that you of have course, to wear a niqab? Of course. of course, it is in Islam. Most ordinary Afghans we meet are in a state of shock, struggling to process the last 24 hours. Faizullah tells us his father was in the Afghan army and was killed this summer. Now he doesn't know what to do. Yesterday I have lost everything. Like I, I don't feel secure in here. You're afraid? Huh? You're afraid? Yeah, I'm afraid. Because I lost my dad. I lost my mom in a local province like two months ago. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, just I'm with my later sister. We are living at home. That's why. I'm afraid from everything. It's the big, big problem. This is the big, big problem for us. It's a feeling shared by so many. Walking along, one has a sense that the real story may be the people who are not on the streets, those too afraid to leave their homes, waiting to see what tomorrow will bring. And those people, Jake, you know. <laughs> Those people who I talk about who are not on the streets, who are hiding out, they're going to be listening one way or another to President Biden's speech. And, and they'll be wanting answers. They'll be wanting to know why it had to be like this, what's being done to try to mitigate some of the suffering of all those people who worked closely with the Americans over all these years. There's so much anger and resentment here. I can't even tell you. Not that people expected America to keep fighting Afghanistan's war. Not that Afghans don't accept that it was their duty and responsibility to defend their own country. But so much for frustration about the way this was all handled, the chaotic, hasty uh, method of withdrawal, the fact that more sort of concrete concessions weren't extracted from the Taliban before agreeing to a complete withdrawal. One woman called it rage and heartbreak, she says. That's what is consuming her now, Jake, rage and heartbreak. With the worst yet to come in all likelihood, Clarissa, because as you just noted, the Taliban they oppress women, they mistreat women, 
There are reports of Taliban fighters kidnapping young girls, essentially to be their slaves. It's referred to as forced marriages, but those aren't marriages. Those are forced rapes. Uh, what, are, what are women there telling you? Well, it depends which women you talk to. If you talk to women in urban centers, educated women, they're devastated. They're petrified. And I definitely noticed a shift out on the streets today. I saw fewer women. The women I did see were more covered. You heard the man in my story just there telling me, it's not enough to be completely covered as I was. Your face needs to be covered too. He also told me I should have been wearing gloves. So that gives you a sense of, of the kind of uh, enforcement of, of uniform or, or, or attire for women that is likely to be seen. And more than that, there are so many women who have achieved great things in their careers in the last 20 years who have bought in to this idea of the American dream. And that dream, Jake, has been taken away from them now. And so quickly, almost overnight, frankly. I mean, it was a matter of hours that the Taliban came in, barely a shot fired, and it was all over. And the, the process now for these people to wrap their heads around their future just being plucked away, one can only really imagine. And that's why it's so important. However, America has already kind of checked out of Afghanistan that we take this moment just to process what's really happened here. All right, Clarissa Ward in Kabul, we'll come back to you after the Biden speech. But right now I want to bring in Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa. She deployed to Kuwait and Iraq as a company commander in the U.S. Army Reserves, in addition to being a U.S. senator from from Iowa, Senator Ernst, good to see you. So we're seeing these heartbreaking images of Afghans desperate to escape, clinging to planes as they take off. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what goes through your mind as a veteran as, as you watch the situation at the airport? Well, Jake, I am a, a veteran. Um, I know you're a dad and, and I'm a mom and it is absolutely heartbreaking. There are thousands of Afghans that wish to flee the country and their only hope is to get on one of those flights. So they're trying to get their children to the airport. They're trying to get on those planes. They are trying to get out of the reach of the Taliban. Um, right now they are at the mercy of the Taliban. And as you mentioned, for women, and younger girls. This is also very devastating for them, the humiliation that they will endure at the hands of the Taliban. All around, this is just a a horrible, horrible mar um, on the United States under President Joe Biden. What do you want to hear President Biden say to the American people um, as as, uh, somebody who, um, I mean, to be frank, neither former President Trump nor President Biden, or then Vice President Biden, there, there was no debate about keeping troops in Afghanistan. Both of them seemed to be on the same page about ending the war as soon as possible. What do you want to hear from President Biden tonight or today? The first thing that I want to hear from President Joe Biden is a thank you to the men and women that have served in the global war on terror. And he needs to be very clear that they are the ones that have protected our nation for the past two decades by taking the fight to the terrorists in Iraq and in Afghanistan and not allowing them to attack our homeland. And unfortunately, we see the resurgence of the Taliban and the reconstitution of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So I worry about the homeland, but that is the very first thing that our president needs to communicate is to these brave men and women, a heartfelt thank you. Um, The second thing is 
how are we going to evacuate all of these Americans, all these Afghans? And then third, how are we going to contain the terrorists in Afghanistan not having our personnel on the ground? And we only have a, a little bit left because we just got the two-minute warning from the White House. Um, but right. lastly, w- would you be in support of some sort of bipartisan uh, effort uh, to grant and expedite the SIV, the Special Immigrant Visa uh, program? It's been held up, frankly, for years um, uh, and uh, neither the Obama nor the uh, Trump nor the Biden administration has been particularly good at speeding up the process. D- does that need to happen? Exactly. Yes, it, absolutely it does. And uh, Senator Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire and I were the lead sponsors of the SIV bill in the United States Senate. It is something we are extremely concerned about. The State Department has been dragging its feet for months now on this issue. It is time that they expedite this. They need to get as many of our friends, our allies out of Afghanistan as quickly as possible. Do you, and do you think I'm watching the White House now? And up oh, here he comes. Thank you, Senator. Here's President Biden. You've been listening to President Biden speaking at the White House, forced to talk about the worsening crisis in Afghanistan, forced to speak uh, to the nation after the calamity of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. The president stated that he stands squarely behind the decision he made to withdraw all U.S. forces from Afghanistan, even though he has, in fact, been forced to send roughly 6,000 back in. The president saying, in fact, that if anything, the events of the last few days, this foreign policy and humanitarian disaster, proves to him that he made the right decision, given the fleeing of Afghan politicians from the country and the collapse of the Afghan military. The president said that the buck stopped with him, but in fact, this speech was full of finger-pointing and blame, especially for the Afghans, even saying that while the U.S. would be working to rescue those Americans and U.S. allies who needed to be saved. He claimed part of the reason why the U.S. did not save sooner Afghan allies, the translators and others who worked with the U.S. military, who fear being slaughtered by the Taliban. They didn't act sooner, the president said, because some Afghans, he claimed, did not want to leave earlier because they were hopeful about a new Afghan government. Mr. Biden also said that the Afghan government discouraged the U.S. from ordering a mass exodus uh, for fear of triggering a crisis of confidence, the president said. Mr. Biden also focused on the larger decision to end the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. That was, in fact, his larger focus, whether or not the U.S. should continue to be there. He did not really get into or accept any blame for the catastrophic exit that we have been watching on television in the last several days. Our our experts are are here. Uh, I want to get everyone's gut reaction. Um, Clarissa, uh, as somebody in Kabul, um, what was that speech like to you? How do you think Afghans will hear it? Well, I think to Afghans, a lot of this will sound like hollow words, Jake. And there will be a lot of frustration with the speech as well, because it didn't get to the nub of the core issue, which, as you mentioned, is not the issue of whether the U.S. should withdraw from Afghanistan. Plenty of Afghans understand that it's Afghanistan's uh, duty to defend itself, that the U.S. couldn't fight this war for more decades. They understand that. Their, their issue, their grievance is with, as you called it, the catastrophic manner 
of this withdrawal. And there was very little there in terms of stepping up to the plate, assuming responsibility, or even, dare I suggest it, issuing some kind of an apology to the Afghan people. And we saw that desperate crush of humanity. I also think there'll be some frustration or disappointment with what the future holds in terms of what President Biden promised uh, in terms of advocating for the rights of Afghan people. He said, uh, we'll engage in regional diplomacy. We'll continue to speak out for Afghan girls. Speaking out, unfortunately, re realistically, is going to be very limited in terms of the effects that it is going to have here on the ground in Taliban-ruled Afghanistan. He talked also about rallying the world to join in with the U.S. Well, you know whose embassy isn't shut today, Jake? Russia's, China's. Those embassies staying open, those countries still engaged. And the fact that we just heard the State Department less than a week ago saying the embassy's not closing, guys, and the message is one of enduring partnership, those words sound hollow. And because those words sound hollow, the words we heard from the president, I believe, to many Afghans will also sound hollow, Jake. Fareed Zakaria, um, we had this uh, experience on my show yesterday with uh, Secretary of State Blinken. They want to talk about whether or not the U.S. should stay in Afghanistan for another 20 years. Um, that's obviously more comfortable terrain for the Biden administration than the manner of this exit and the idea of why it has been so ineptly and incompetently done, why President Biden didn't listen to military leaders who talked about how quickly, and intelligence uh, officials who talked about how quickly uh, the Taliban might take over the country, how quickly everything could collapse. The only time I really heard him addressing this, uh, Fareed, was when he explained why they didn't take out uh, so many uh, Afghan translators, etc., earlier. And also when he said there's never any, there was never going to ever be a good time to leave Afghanistan. Uh, Jake, I think you, you put it well. Look, uh, President Biden made some important points that to an American audience will ring true. The, the point that ultimately we failed in, in, in trying to nation build in Afghanistan, but more importantly, in simply defeating the Taliban. Let's remember the Taliban controlled 5% of the country in 2001, roughly, you know, once we ousted them, they were up to 50%. But by the time Donald Trump was in office, when there were 15,000 American troops in the country. So the Taliban had been gaining ground. Um, there was, it's a fantasy that we could have kept 2,500 troops there. Biden was right about that. He was right about the fact that it, in general, they had not, they, they, the United States mission had not found a way to defeat the enemy, to, to build Afghanistan. All that, I think, for Americans will, will ring true. The part, as you say, that's more complicated is the, is the withdrawal, the, the tactical issue of how they did it. Could they not have quietly set a plan in place? Could they not have recognized that you know, this would happen very quickly and therefore they needed more troops there early. Part of the problem here, Jake, is that the Pentagon, I believe, told them speed is safety. When you get out, get out fast. Well, that is not compatible with securing an airport, making sure that everyone can get to it, or an orderly processing of people, particularly Afghans. And there, frankly, there was a hard choice to make, which was do you overrule the Pentagon and say, no, we're going to keep forces there, we're going to build up, we're going to hold so that we can do this in an orderly fashion? Remember, the Taliban has not attacked American troops. So it is possible there was a better way to get out. But, you know, as I've said, Jake, at the end of the day, the problem is we lost this war several years ago. We have not been able to defeat the Taliban. 
Um, Biden did pull the Band-Aid off. Uh, and I, I think he took a very tough decision, a brave decision. Uh, and maybe at the end of the day, there is no elegant way to lose a war. Caitlin Collins uh, at the White House. Um, usually President Biden can be coerced or it actually doesn't even take that much coaxing to take a question uh, shouted out by the press corps after he gives remarks. Uh, his staff gets frustrated that he, he does that. Um, but this time he stayed on message. He gave his speech and left. Yeah, Jake, and I think a lot of the questions that went unanswered in that speech are not over why the U.S. is withdrawing from Afghanistan. This is a position that President Biden has held for a very long time, ever since he was the vice president for eight years under President Obama. It is not surprising this is the route that he chose to take. But the questions that are facing the administration right now and that did not really get a lot of answers during that speech by President Biden were how this withdrawal happened. Those are the big questions and the big criticisms over the images that you are seeing, given we have top national security aides saying that they did plan for every possible contingency, and that is what the White House is telling their Democratic allies on Capitol Hill as well, given the reality of what we are seeing on the ground and what Clarissa and Nick are reporting on and the images coming out of the airport in Kabul where there are desperate Afghans clinging to U.S. planes as they are taking off from the tarmac. Those are the big questions that are facing the White House over misjudging the intelligence because President Biden did concede six weeks after saying he thought a Taliban takeover was highly unlikely that it happened a lot faster than they expected. But the questions behind that or are whether or not he was warned that this could happen, whether or not the U.S. intelligence did believe that was a possibility. And if they were preparing for every possibility, why was this not included in it? Because there are people who said, yes, this could happen. They thought it was going to take months. But people like the Secretary of State Blinken, who you interviewed yesterday, said they did not envision it being a Friday through Monday takeover when we pretty much got a 72-hour takeover when it came to Kabul. And so those are big questions facing the White House, Jake. And we should note President Biden did return from Camp David to here to the White House just to give this speech. And now, based on the latest schedule that we are getting from the White House, he is returning to Camp David, uh, where we expect him to monitor the situation from there. Uh, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Uh, David Axelrod, I want to bring you in because you said before uh, the address that you thought that you wanted to hear President Biden uh, accept responsibility uh, for the catastrophe we've been watching take place in Afghanistan. Afghans desperate, running onto the tarmac, grabbing onto the to the wheels of, of U.S. Air Force planes, falling from those planes, almost like a, a cruel and tragic bookend to the falling man images that we saw uh, on 9-11. Um, he did say the buck stops with me, but I heard a lot of finger pointing. What did you think, David? Yeah, look, I I agree with you, Jake. I thought that his case for why we had to get out was strong. It was compelling. And I think he had to do that as well. Uh, But uh, I do think that he needed to take responsibility. You know, my thoughts go back to uh, uh, President Kennedy in the Bay of Pigs crisis uh, when that was a a, a failure. Uh, He stood before the American people and he said, victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. I am the responsible officer of government. And I think a little more of that would have been useful for the president here. We're going to continue to see horrific scenes for some time to come here. And uh, this clearly did not go as planned. And to pretend that it did go as planned, I mean, he did say in passing that this was not, uh, that, that it went faster than they thought it would. Well, that's like a pretty big fact. 
And there were all kinds of implications of that. I was thinking when he said, you know, we will continue our counterterrorism operations and we're going to have our eyes uh, on uh, the ground there. Well, presumably they had eyes on the ground now. And uh, so why did we fail in anticipating what uh, what happened? So I I think he would have served himself well if he had uh, just embraced it. Yes, there were failures on the part of the clearly on the part of the Afghans. Yes, the government there is corrupt. Yes, Donald Trump left him uh, with a mess. All of that is true. But he is the commander in chief now. He is in charge of this operation. And uh, he, he should have said it did not go as it should have and uh, and 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 taken responsibility for that. Dana, do you think this speech will go over well with a segment of the American people, not just Biden supporters, but with people who are weary of the war, people who are inclined to believe President Biden when he says that there never was going to be a good time to leave this and I'm not going to lose one more American soldier uh, in, in, in to, to fight for a country where they won't fight for themselves. Yes. Yes. And not just uh, Biden supporters, maybe even Trump supporters, since he was the one who got this ball rolling and even people who weren't necessarily focused on any of this to hear uh, the president explain why Afghanistan is and staying in Afghanistan is not in America's national security interest was for domestic American consumption, full stop. And obviously this is, the imagery here is a, a, a symbolic and a very real crisis for the U.S. on an international scale. But what that address was about was telling the American people, this is why I stand by my decision. This is a reminder that I am the fourth president to preside over the war in Afghanistan, and I won't allow there to be a fifth. And weaving in uh, the from President Biden about China, about Russia, and as as tough a a pill as this is to swallow, that clearly was the aim of President Biden. I will say, though, having said all that, he didn't answer really important questions, like, for example, why wasn't, if this was very long in the planning, why wasn't it executed properly? Why wasn't the American uh, military ready for this? Why didn't uh, the people who wanted visas, despite what what President Biden said, and were asking for it, as you have been talking about constantly, Jake, why weren't they brought out a long time ago since we knew this deadline was going to happen? And one other thing that I will say as I toss back to you, Jake, is I got a text from Biden ally saying one thing that was missing, and this is about also domestic American consumption, was... Um, an acknowledgement and sympathy with all of the American uh, military forces who have served there, who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Again, you know about this very well, Jake, you've written about it. And maybe there could have been more of an emphasis on that. Uh, David Chalian, um, President Biden keeps trying to change the subject from this inept withdrawal, which just let's be frank here. If you withdraw 2,500 troops and then you have to send 6,000 back, that's not planned. Right. That's on its face an example of a failure. Um, he keeps trying to change the subject from that to this straw man. It's not actually a straw man because there are people who want to Correct. keep an American presence there. But to the larger argument about an American presence continued 
in Afghanistan. Um, I, I suppose that that might work for some people. Yeah, I mean, I actually think he succeeded in that goal today, right, which is to reframe these horrific images of a clearly failed plan in departure here uh, to try and put it, as you called it earlier, Jake, into that safer political terrain of this larger notion of the decision to withdraw forces from Afghanistan. That's not really what these last 72 hours was about, though. I mean, yes, uh, he can... Uh, do his best, as he did today, to reframe for the American people what they're seeing. That's a casualty of this ultimate decision that he knows a majority of Americans support him on, which is no longer having a military presence in Afghanistan. Uh, He even said, he used words like, it's going to be hard and messy and far from perfect. Um, He said he's deeply saddened by the facts we are facing right now. But again, it all came back in a 20 minute speech. The vast majority of it was just reframing the the big decision to ultimately withdraw and not hand this on uh, to another president. But I will note, you know, just before the speech, uh, Democratic Senator Mark Warner, the chair of the Intel Committee, had put out a statement. And at the end of that statement, he said uh, it's going to be his mission to ask the tough questions and and understandably that it is going to be hard to find the answer to this, to why this did not go clearly uh, the way that the administration had planned for it to go, that the American people deserve answers to that. And obviously, all that served uh, in Afghanistan and their families uh, and sacrificed there, they too deserve answers for that because of what they are seeing on the screen. So though he had a uh, political reframing uh, that I think he did quite well and looked totally in command as commander in chief. This was not a Joe Biden that seemed sort of overwhelmed by the problem. It seemed a, a tripling down on his uh, decision as president to withdraw the United States from the military forces from Afghanistan. But you can't have both. We planned for every contingency. But the truth is, it unfolded more quickly than we anticipated. Those two things uh, don't actually go together. And it's that leaving that unanswered, I think, leaves this uh, opportunity uh, for legitimate criticism that I think the president is going to probably need to continue or at least get back to and try another take at getting those answers to why this didn't go as planned. And Jeff Zeleny, um, to the point David Chang was just making, President Biden didn't want didn't take any questions today. Uh, But he's going to face tough questions from Republicans and Democrats in Congress. I mean, this this was a foreign policy disaster, watching what we have watched unfold over the last few days. It is possible, I suppose, that if no Americans suffer an ill fate uh, in the last few days or, or do in the next week or two, if these rescue missions succeed, and God knows I hope they do, it is possible that a large swath of the American people, and I'm not advocating for this, but a large swath simply won't care what happens to the Afghan people. Jake, I think that's absolutely correct. And look, I mean, we've talked more about Afghanistan in the last three days than we have the last three months. This simply is not on the uh, tops of the hearts and minds of most Americans right now. But that is really beside the point. Uh, As David was just uh, smartly pointing out there, there are Democrats asking questions as well the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner, saying he's going to ask tough questions. One thing here to keep in mind, the top advisors here surrounding President Biden, I am talking uh, specifically. Jeff, I got to interrupt you. We have to go to the State Department where uh, State Department spokesman Ned Price is uh, talking and briefing reporters. Let's listen in. 
All right, we've been listening to briefings from the Pentagon and before that from the State Department on the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan. We heard a top general there confirming that more American troops are about to arrive in the country's capital of Kabul. They're prepared to defend themselves and those evacuating the country if necessary. I have been told by a White House source that securing the airport in Kabul is priority one. The State Department urged all Americans remaining in Afghanistan to continue to shelter in place, to not head to the airport in Kabul, which is not yet secure. Let's go to Kabul right now, where we find CNN's Nick Payton Walsh. Uh, and Nick, we just heard an update from the Pentagon on the evacuees, on the evacuation rather of Afghan allies. Uh, these are these special immigrant visas, uh, individuals who helped the U.S. military during the war, whose lives are now at risk from the Taliban. CNN's learned the Pentagon's hoping to relocate up to. 30,000 Afghans into the U.S. Uh, Tell us more about what you're hearing on the ground. Well, I have to say the figure 30,000 sounds extraordinary. And having spent the last few weeks listening to the Pentagon outline in Afghanistan, that sounds extremely uh, viable to justify their own policy. It often doesn't correlate with the reality here. So the notion of the 30,000 Afghans here who've worked close enough with the U.S. while they were here to qualify for special treatment, to be allowed to leave Taliban-controlled city like Kabul and then head through Taliban checkpoints to the airport. We've been hearing during the night earlier what sounded like gunfire in the direction of uh, the airport. That, to me, is an extraordinary uh, suggestion to make. Um, obviously, you know, we heard suggestions that the Afghan security forces would stand up and fight and uh, had a very strong air force and would essentially give the Taliban the run for their money. And now here we are standing in a Taliban-run Kabul at this point. So it, I heard all that, and I'm sure there are many Afghans here deeply believing that it's feasible that we will see 7,000 U.S. soldiers at the airport and they will somehow get along with the Taliban who will move back and the Taliban will then decide to let these people who have assisted the U.S. against them out of the country. But that's a big ask, and the chaos we saw today, frankly, was, was startling, Jake, and gives no indication that we're about to see order in that part of town. Well, tell Thanks. us about the, the chaos you saw at the Kabul airport today. Yeah, I mean, there is essentially a number of roads towards the airport. But what's extraordinary is that the, the feeling in this city when the Taliban moved in quite so slowly, quite so peacefully, um, was panic amongst so many. They believed maybe they could get onto civilian aircraft. Those civilian flights were cancelled. Then the U.S. started uh, bringing in their cargo. We've started hearing again uh, what I think are flights coming into the airport after a bit of a suspension. But earlier on this afternoon, we saw some extraordinary scenes at the airport where essentially the Taliban are right up against U.S. forces now. This is the only way out for so many. The airport road jammed, chaos, over a trillion dollars spent And this is what the end looks like. Walk where you can't drive. Just ahead of us is the gates into the airport. And this is the panicked scene of many people still moving there, despite how hard it's been. At the entry to the last bit of Afghanistan America controls, there is panic. They're shouting tanks, right? Yeah, they say that. Let's turn around. Tanks, someone shouts. But who is doing crowd control outside America's evacuation spot? The Taliban. Vehicles they've taken from the Afghan army, paid for by America, now used to keep the desperate crowds back. People whose only hope is to get out, possibly with American help. Crowding at gates, 
trying to clamber walls originally built to keep an insurgency out, at one time pushing en masse and being sent running. Nearly every gate with a crowd fueled with the idea this is their only way out. But inside the airport, the great escape was not going according to script and check-in security had collapsed. Afghans, convinced the promise of a flight out was their only life ahead, clambering over walkways and tarmac the US spent billions on to maintain its presence. And then this startling image, one of the US's largest cargo planes taxiing, laden with Afghans who did not want to be left behind. Later, a plane takes off, and what you're about to see is disturbing. As the plane ascends, two objects, or people, appear to fall from the fuselage. But the sheer scale of those who needed help meant it was even harder to come by. Civilian flights cancelled. Even the Americans had to pause operations till they could regain control. The US always wanted to win hearts and minds here, but their swift, unconditional departure has instead filled them with panic. Now, Jake, I don't know how you go from those scenes today to the vision that John Kirby at the Pentagon was outlining there. And it will take an extraordinary act, frankly, of diplomacy with the Taliban here, who the U.S. have simply said they will attack with their overwhelming force uh, if they ever come into clashes here. Those 7,000 troops will be flying into an airport that probably is still some degree of chaos. Yes, we are hearing the flights starting again, but it is a mammoth operation. It is even by their own best estimates probably going to take a number of weeks to get 30,000 people out and now that news is in the city it will fill people with hope again possibly false hope and possibly encourage again the sort of scenes we've seen because there just isn't the process really as you approach that area in which if you do have a proven seat you can get inside the airport it is uh, quite startling and I don't really know how they're going to pull this off. We didn't really understand how they would pull it off when the government would still be in place here. Now the Taliban have taken over, it seems, I wouldn't say far-fetched, everyone here hopes it's viable, but at the same time I can't see it. And, and Nick, we've been covering on this show uh, for months this idea of these Afghan allies, interpreters and others trying to get out of the country, people warning the Biden administration this needs to happen. Uh, before the Taliban control the roads, before the Taliban control, control the towns and villages. Biden, uh, President Biden addressed that in his speech. He said one of the reasons they didn't get them out is because some of the Afghans decided that actually they wanted to stay because they were hopeful for a future in Afghanistan. And the other reason, he said, is that the Afghan government, such as it was at the time, told them not to uh, cause a mass exodus for fear that that would cause uh, a crisis in confidence in the Afghan government. What's your reaction to, to that? How credible do you find those claims? I actually have to say, I have heard both those things before. Although the point you have to realize, Jake, is that over the past years, people who felt threatened, people who felt they had the capacity, have already left. So it has been people either heavily devoted or lacking the resources who've still stayed in Kabul, who wanted to get out. The idea of 
this being a real problem for the Afghan government, seeing a mass exodus. I did hear that from a now former Afghan government official. They were deeply concerned that if they were going to have to fight a war against the Taliban and all the people that the US had trained over their time here were all trying to get out on planes, that would sap their manpower. But that's been happening, frankly, for years too. So it was extraordinary to hear him essentially say, well, they just didn't want to leave yet, because it is, frankly, hard now to find Afghans who wouldn't jump at that particular opportunity. I've heard someone say, I'm going to wait and see what happens a couple of times, maybe. But the other extraordinary thing to hear today was at the Pentagon, where they essentially threw the State Department under the bus, saying this SIV program has been around for a while. It was pretty slow and we had to get involved. That was extraordinary to me. Yeah. Nick Payton Walsh, stay safe. Thank you so much for your excellent reporting, as always. Let me bring bring back in some of my panelists, uh, Caitlin Collins at the White House. Um, President Biden, he's left the White House, we're told. Uh, He's on his way back to Camp David. Um, What are you hearing from his closest advisors about how they feel the speech went? Well, Jake, they're not surprised that this is the tone that he took, defiant in his defense of his decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, though, of course, the crux of it did not address the criticism, which is how the U.S. is withdrawing from Afghanistan. And this is something that even Democratic lawmakers have said they have questions over just how this was executed and what the intelligence had actually shown behind what happened, given it was just six weeks ago that President Biden himself was pretty confident that he did not believe a Taliban takeover of of Afghanistan was highly likely. He said it was, quote, highly unlikely. But today he defended his decision overall to withdraw, saying this. I always promised the American people that I would be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. Now, he did say there that this did happen faster than they anticipated. He did not say why. That has been a big question, Jake. Is it the intelligence? Was it intelligence that they did not believe uh, was incredibly uh, likely to happen, given what we've seen transpire over the last several hours? And, of course, Jake, he was talking about what has happened. There are still questions of what remains to be done, given there are still Americans there. There are still a lot of those vulnerable Afghans, a lot of those who are qualifying for the special immigrant visas. Those are big questions that are still facing this White House over what this is going to look like as they are trying to secure the only airport they have left to get out of. Jeff, uh, most of Biden's staff, most of his aides, are are, are staying at the White House, even as he heads back to Camp David. Uh, Behind the scenes, any second guessing, any questions about the president's position, his speech, tone, anything? Well, Jake, there is no doubt from the moment that uh, President Biden assumed office, this has been one of his chief goals, trying to end this war. So, of course, he surrounded himself by advisors who shared that view. Well, I've been talking with several of them, as well as officials in previous administrations, and heard a very interesting thought from one former official, Jake. He said this, no one disagrees with with, with this decision to leave Afghanistan, almost no one. But executing that decision was their responsibility, and they were blindsided. So this, of course, uh, is something that is important going forward into how they are viewing the rest of this crisis. Uh, everyone surrounding uh, the president was essentially trying to execute his wishes without anyone essentially uh, putting up some caution flags here that uh, this uh, might unfold uh, 
in the president's words, uh, too quickly. But as Caitlin said, he did not say why this unfolded too quickly. So there uh, are going to be recriminations. There are questions coming from Capitol Hill. There will be. But as of now, we cannot hear any, uh, you know, any sign of the president being angry or asking tough questions of these advisors. So that is something to keep an eye on going forward here. Will anything be changed in his national security uh, team or uh, the people who are advising him? But optics, as you know, Jake, are very important for any president. So the president going back to Camp David, very important optically as well. They are trying to show they have this crisis under control. We'll see, of course, if he comes back to the White House and has to speak again. And Neomalika Anderson, uh, President Biden's strategy seems to be um, to, in many ways, uh, tune out the criticism uh, and to strongly defend his decision to withdraw U.S. troops. He, in fact, said that he, he stands b- b- behind it uh, where he was before. And, in fact, the, the events that have unfolded in the last three days only reaffirm to him uh, his commitment to, to have U.S. service members leave um, how much do you think this is a political calculation? I, 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 he has never, since the mission in Afghanistan, changed from defeating al-Qaeda uh, to nation-building and more, uh, counterinsurgency, etc. He has not supported that for years. Uh, ending this war, as Jeff points out, has been l- l- one of his priorities for a long time. But how much do you think that is rooted in politics, and how much is, do you think is rooted in his actual belief that that the experiment in Afghanistan is a failure. Well, listen, I think it's rooted in his actual belief. And then you look at polling on this, uh, he's with the American people on this. Uh, if you go back about a decade, uh, Americans by majorities started to believe that the efforts in Afghanistan uh, just weren't worth it. If you look at his speech today, uh, those are the folks he was talking to. Americans who basically uh, have judged this war, judged the people uh, who made promises uh, over over the last uh, 20 years about this war, uh, judge them as not being uh, honest with the American people about the situation uh, on the ground there. He has this remarkable ability. I think it's one of his greatest political skills uh, that he can meet Americans where they live uh, and essentially reflect uh, what they believe. And that's what you heard in his speech today. There is the chattering class of people who talk on TV. uh, And in some ways, I think folks uh, in, in government are obviously a part of that and lawmakers. And there will be uh, lots of criticisms from uh, Democrats uh, and Republicans about his decision. But by and large, Americans are, are, are with him on this decision. And so that's why he was, I think, focusing on the big picture of this was a messy war. It was the wrong war for Americans uh, to fight. Uh, and it's not worth the time of uh, men and women, generations of men and women to go over there and fight a war that Afghans uh, people uh, are, weren't even willing uh, to fight in, in these last days. Sure, there will be more questions, and I thought Barbara Starr's uh, questions about uh, what failed and who is responsible, those will be questions, but I think by and large, average Americans won't necessarily be asking those questions. Uh, they will be glad uh, that this war is coming to an end. All right, thanks one and all. Uh, joining us now, retired General H.R. McMaster, President Trump's Second National Security Advisor. He discusses Afghanistan in his book, Battlegrounds, the Fight to Defend the Free World. General McMaster, uh, good to see you as always. Um, What should President Biden have said to the American people today, and what did you think of what he did say? Well, I think he should have said exactly the opposite of what he said, Jake. I mean, I think the, the speech is based on really three things the president wants us to believe that are just fundamentally untrue, right? First of all, that 
that this was inevitable, right? I mean, the, his illusion to, well, this could have happened five years ago or 10 years from now. But the reality is, going back to the Trump administration, this capitulation agreement with the Taliban, and then the series of psychological blows that we delivered to the Afghan government and the Afghan people. I mean, gosh, Jake, remember when, when Secretary Blinken you know, wrote a letter to Ashraf Ghani to ask him to do more for peace as the Afghan were, as, as uh, the, the Taliban were assassinating Afghans and committing mass murder attacks across the country. The second thing that he wanted to, to I think, us to, us to believe uh, that this wasn't predictable. I think this was utterly predictable based in large measure on our behavior, the capitulation agreement, which I, I mentioned, uh, and, and the way that we emboldened the Taliban while we weakened the Afghan government and security forces on our, our way out, you know, by not insisting on a ceasefire, by forcing them to release, you know, 5,000 of some of the most heinous uh, people, people on earth. And then the third thing that I think everybody wants to, to, you to believe or, and us to believe that, you know, that it just wasn't worth it, right? That, that we hadn't accomplished anything. We'd wasted so much in Afghanistan. But how can you say that and see what the Afghan people are losing now, right? Mm-hmm. It's apparent in their loss of their freedoms, in the loss of their security, in what's happening to, to women uh, across the country, that we did accomplish quite a bit. And what's so sad, Jake, you know, is, is it was a sustainable level, level of commitment, right? This, you know, this end the endless wars mantra. I mean, what are you talking? You're talking about 3,500 troops or maybe 8,000 troops. I mean, it really doesn't matter that we're enabling the Afghans to bear the brunt of the fight. I think what was what was most disheartening for me to hear today is to lay this at the, you know, at the door of the Afghan leadership and the Afghan security forces, which, as you know, I mean, tens of thousands of Afghans have given their lives, right, to yeah. preserve the freedoms they've enjoyed since 2001. So, um, so Jake, it was, and, and also, I just would like to say one last thing, Jake, mm-hmm. here too, and I'd love to hear where you want to take the conversation, but... I think also there's a sense now that we can't do anything more, right? We can just evacuate these 30,000. What about the rest of them, Jake? You know, where are the humanitarians in, in the Biden administration now? You know, there are tons of civilian flights, charter flights that have been donated. There are third countries that are willing to take Afghans, to take Afghan women and Afghan university students, and they're lined up, ready to go. Well, if we, if we give a damn about human rights, I mean, I can't believe that the president mentioned human rights in the speech at the same time as he was right. he was talking about the very narrowly circumscribed mission. You know, Jake, as and as your reporter has said on the ground, you know, you need safe quarters. So you, know, you, you, you I, need areas that people can come to. You talked about the capitulation agreement with the Taliban that that was negotiated uh, by the previous administration, uh, the capitulation agreement. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wonder how I wonder how much much you let me just ask you because I want to plenty of blame to go around. Yeah. No, I know you're you're criticizing both Trump and and Biden. I wonder how much you think the the Taliban played the Trump administration uh, by negotiating this peace agreement that they ultimately were not willing to make any concessions in. And then also the political leader who went on social media, the political leader of the Taliban who went on social media, I think his name is Mala Barader. I, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. I might not be. Um, he, Baradar, yeah. Uh, Baradar, he, so he was captured by the, the Pakistanis in like 2010. He was freed in 2018 during the time that the Trump administration was pushing forward this, this diplomatic agreement. He went to, to Doha. He became part of the, the Taliban um, negotiating team. And now he's, you know, in Kabul, he's in the presidential palace. How, how much of this, yeah. obviously the buck stops with Biden, but how much of the this, this stage was set by Trump? 
No, and or set by the Obama administration, you could say, right? Those, that's the administration under which the Tal- Taliban political commission was opened. It was always a pipe dream. It was always giving you know a stage uh, to some of the most odious people on earth, right? Terrorists who are, I think, the enemies of all civilized people, Jake. I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, the the Trump administration doubled down on the mistakes of the uh, of the. Obama administration after the president abandoned what had been, I think, really the first reasoned and sustainable approach toward Afghanistan in 2017. And then the Biden administration doubled down uh, on the flaws of of the Trump administration and the self-delusion, really. We're seeing an end of that delusion now, but people are still clinging you know, to the same sorts of, of arguments about the war. But you know, we only have have a a minute left, so I just want to just ask you quickly. Polls indicate that the American people don't want uh, a U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. And they look at people uh, like me in the media and you, a uh, retired general, and, you, and they think, you're the numbskulls that got us in this, into this to begin with. We don't want our service members dying over there for Afghans who are not even willing to, to fight to defend themselves. That, that's, a, that's a very prevalent view. What, what do you say to that? Well, I would just say, do you expect a president to lead? Or do you expect a president to, as one of your panelists said, meet the people where they are. I think it should come as no surprise that the vast majority of Americans don't support the war because three presidents in a row have told them it's not worth it, right? And so I think that this fundamental misunderstanding of the war and a failure to communicate to the American people what they deserve to know, Jake, right? Hey, what is at stake there? And what is a strategy that can deliver a favorable outcome uh, at an acceptable cost, right? That's what the American people deserve to know. And I would say across the last three administrations, the American people haven't heard that from their leadership. All right. I have more questions for you, so please come back later this week because I, I, I want to ask them. Uh, retired General H.R. McMaster, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Coming up, we're going to talk to a Republican senator who says the bloodshed in Afghanistan was not only predictable, it was predicted. Stay with us. In our world lead, Afghans so desperate to escape, they are clinging to U.S. evacuation flights. But some Afghans might have a different way. About 60,000 Afghans could theoretically qualify for evacuation, either for human rights reasons or special immigrant visas. A life-saving pass to leave Afghanistan meant for Afghans who helped the U.S. with crucial services during America's longest war. The Pentagon says the U.S. will help evacuate 30,000. Officials say this does not include their family members so far. Only 2,000 Afghans and their family members have landed in the U.S. We have just learned 700 have been evacuated from the Kabul airport in the last 48 hours. CNN State Department correspondent Kylie Atwood now tells the harrowing stories behind these numbers. Afghans chasing down an American plane, revealing the desperation to escape. Tens of thousands of Afghans who helped U.S. diplomats and U.S. troops in Afghanistan have applied for special immigrant visas, or SIVs, and they are currently trapped in the country, terrified that they and their families will be targeted by the Taliban if they don't get out. I'm under the threat, and the threat is following me. I'm like a prisoner. I'm just staying at home. Today, we spoke with one SIV applicant, Ismail, whose full name we are concealing to keep him safe. He worked with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers at Bagram Air Base. Ismail was denied a visa in the past and has tried to reapply. He says with the Taliban now in control of the country, he doesn't believe their assurances that people like him will be safe. Taliban are the people that they never keep their promise. They are promise breakers. 
While the U.S. has evacuated 2,000 Afghans and their families in recent weeks to the U.S., it's only a small fraction of the 60,000 who would qualify for SIVs or refugee status. And that number does not include their families. Last week, the top U.S. diplomat in the country urged the department in a cable back to Washington to include a wider swath of Afghans in its evacuation planning. And now, as pandemonium overwhelms Afghanistan, the Biden administration is coming under fire for not getting these Afghans out of the country more quickly. We are doubling down on efforts uh, to get them out if they want to leave. Biden administration officials have threatened severe consequences if the Taliban interfere with Afghans heading to the airport. But right now, they won't assist Afghans who are trying to get there safely. The United States is not in a position now and will not be in a position going forward to provide security throughout the city of Kabul and throughout the nation of Afghanistan. We are focused on the airport. The U.S. has the capacity to move 5,000 people a day out of the country. But with the chaos at the airport, it's not clear when the U.S. will be able to start moving that many people out of the crumbling country. Now, when asked at the State Department briefing just now how many of these Afghan interpreters the U.S. is going to be able to get out of the country, the State Department wouldn't exactly say. They say they're working around the clock on this effort, but time is of the essence, as you well know, Jake. It's unclear just how long the U.S. military will have a presence to secure the airport there, and that is one of the key essential elements that gets these flights out of the country that these Afghans are on. Jake. All right, Kylie Atwood, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass. He's a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Senator Sass, good to see you again. So CNN sources tell us that the Biden administration still plans to get out 30,000 Afghan allies, uh, interpreters and such, out of the country, not including their family members. From what you're hearing, is that realistic? Well, first of all, let's just say, Jake, that that whole last segment should make every American want to vomit uh, because the 60,000 number that she's naming is right. Uh, and all of their families, <clears throat> this is not some abstraction. These are moms and dads with little kids at their knees, some of them at the wire or the airport, and every one of them should be gotten out by us. And what should be realistic is that we should do what is necessary to keep our word that we've given to these people. This is a shameful day in America. I don't disagree with you. I'm seeing a lot of voices on the right, though, saying this is all part of Biden's plan to flood uh, the United States with immigrants, uh, people like Stephen Miller, his former Im- immigration advisor, uh, and others on the far right, people like J.D. Vance, criticizing the idea of, of, of bringing these people into the country. Um, are you going to is there political will is among the Republicans in the U.S. Senate uh, to help these people? So first of all, I don't give a rip what Stephen Miller has to say about anything. Uh, But the the significant point here is the United States gave our word to people and the United States has to be the kind of nation that keeps our word. President Biden's speech was shameful today. It was it was a campaign speech. Everybody knows what he campaigned on. Everybody knows, to quote Bob Gates, uh, that President Biden has been on the wrong side of almost every major foreign policy issue for 40 years. The fact that he ran on withdrawal isn't the point. What the American people needed to hear today is that he has a plan for the ongoing national security crisis that's happening at the Kabul airport. 
It involves Americans, but it also involves a lot of people who fought alongside Americans so that we wouldn't have another 9-11 on our soil. We would take that fight to the Taliban. And so the fundamental misunderstanding that the American people have is not because of any place that the military's failed. Obviously, the military failed in the planning for this. But the fundamental problem we have is that the, the troops haven't failed over the last 20 years. Politicians have failed to explain to the American people what we were doing in Afghanistan and how we were being successful. There's this false choice that comes out in every Biden speech right now when he just resurrects all these old talking points that we've heard for months and months and months. This false choice of zero troops, immediate withdrawal, precipitous with no clarity, no planning and isolationist nonsense, or we need 150,000 occupying ground troops. Mm -hmm. We haven't had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan in a decade. The truth is what we had, not a month ago, but what we've had and why we've been successful at decapitating terror organizations was a small forward deployed asset light but impact heavy group that was sustaining intel and special forces operations. So we could decapitate a lot of folks who are like bin Laden, except that Americans never know their name because they never took down a world Trade Center building. Politicians have failed to explain this to the American people. And I think the American people, when they understand this, when they talk to troops who've served in Afghanistan, they want something very different than what they're seeing on their TV screens today. These images of weakness and betrayal. What do you make of the Biden argument that what has happened in, the, in Afghanistan in the last few weeks, uh, suggest, you know, with Afghan leaders fleeing, like Ashraf Ghani, the president, former president, or Afghan uh, military leaders surrendering, collapsing, that, that underscores the fact that the, 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 the point, the argument that the mission of building up the Afghan army, of building up uh, Afghan democracy, has failed. He's, he's made that, he made that argument today um, so as to underscore that he made the right decision. Removing for a second the, the issue of this calamitous exit, um, just talking about a continued presence, because that's what you're talking about. What do you make of that? Yeah, on the Senate Intelligence Committee for months, going back to probably mid-April, you've had a loud chorus of Republican and Democratic voices screaming at Biden administration officials, what is your plan? They have told us that they were sure that everything would be fine through the pause in fighting season over the winter. And if the Taliban ever mounted some significant offensive that moved toward Kabul, it wouldn't happen until next spring. And we repeatedly, again, by we, I mean Republicans and Democrats raised voices at Biden administration officials saying, why are you so sure of this? And what is your contingency plan? And they would sort of murmur and say, well, we don't want to embarrass the president, uh, so we don't want to go into great detail, but clearly you're being too pessimistic. But of course we have a contingency plan. They didn't have a contingency plan. And the reason so many of the Afghan security forces melted is because the Biden administration messaged over and over again this nonsense about a negotiation with the Taliban off in some Belgian restaurant somewhere. And they they messaged repeatedly that they were not going to support our allies in the moment of crisis. And so you had the Biden administration actively undermining the confidence of the commanders in the Afghan security forces. President Biden tried today in that speech 
to blame a lot on the former administration. And I've been very clear. I fought with President Trump many, many, many times about his plans to withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, and so there's a lot of blame that this administration puts on the last one because they began negotiating with the Taliban. I get that. But today what the president did is he pivoted and started attacking Afghans, including moms and dads who are at the edge of that airport with their kids. Why are they there? Why did they come to that airport? Because our troops promised them that the U.S. would never just turn tail and cowardly have another Saigon-like event. This is worse than Saigon. What is happening at the Karzai International Airport today is a more shameful lower moment in U.S. history than 1975 in Saigon. And Biden comes out of his bunker. He comes back from Camp David trying to do a campaign photo op speech, and he attacks the Afghan people who are at the edge of that airport because we promised them security. They fought with us and we said they would be secure and his administration undermined the confidence of those people fighting and they didn't believe they were going to have air support. And then we bizarrely, in one of the great blunders in military history, evacuated Bagram Air Force Base in the night. Why? Why would we have evacuated Bagram Air Force Base? The Biden administration undermined the confidence of the fighters in Afghanistan. Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, good to see you again, sir. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Coming up, more than 1,000 people killed by an earthquake and now a major storm on the way. We're going to go live on the ground to Haiti. That's next. In our world lead, close to 1,300 people are dead and at least 5,000 more injured after a 7.2 magnitude earthquake devastated Haiti on Saturday morning. This tragedy comes 11 years after an earthquake killed more than 200,000 Haitians. CNN's Matt Rivers joins us now from Port-au-Prince. Matt, to make matters worse, of course, a tropical depression is now headed straight for you. Yeah, it's really arrived, Jake, in the last hour or so, I'd say. The wind has picked up. You can see it's obviously raining quite strongly here. And we're about 60 miles or so west of, or maybe about 100 or so miles west of where the epicenter of this was. What this is going to do, obviously, is complicate the search and rescue efforts that are ongoing as we speak. What we're hearing from the CNN weather team is that as this tropical depression moves over where we are, the place in Haiti that is set to receive the most amount of rainfall from this just happens to be the place where the epicenter of this earthquake was. This is a place where there is a lot of damage, and this kind of rainfall, anywhere from 5 to 15 inches in localized areas, it, talked, it brings up the risk of flash flooding and mudslides. It makes the job of rescue workers right now that much harder, Jake. It's already been complicated given the tenuous state of infrastructure here in Haiti. But, you know, you add in a tropical depression, it doesn't make things any better. Matt, what did you see when you went to the epicenter? Yeah, I mean, if you think things look bad now, uh, you know, and they are, they're just going to get worse. But when we went to the epicenter yesterday, even when it was sunny out, you can see the damage left behind by this earthquake. We actually managed to make our way to a hotel, a multiple-story hotel that had collapsed in on itself as a result of this earthquake. And it was just devastation. I mean, we were told by authorities that bodies remain in that rubble. People from the community both were there to help. Uh, but it's also a desperate situation. People actually going into the rubble and taking away, you know, metal rebar and air conditioning units that they that they found. It's a desperate situation in this part of Haiti. It goes to the chronic poverty that has forever plagued, at least in recent years, these this country that has dealt with 
uh, an earthquake in 2010, a hurricane in 2016. We were here a month ago talking about the president being assassinated. Now it's another earthquake and a tropical depression at the same time, Jake. This country cannot catch a break, and unfortunately, these death toll figures that we've seen so far, roughly 1,300 at the moment, it's almost assuredly going to climb. All right, Matt Rivers with the Grim News, live from Port-au-Prince. Thank you so much. Coming up, the loss of a congressman who left a legacy of standing up for democracy. Stay with us. Some sad news in our politics lead. Former Republican Congressman Paul Mitchell of Michigan has died of cancer just two months after announcing his diagnosis. He was 64 years old. Mitchell served two terms in Congress, ultimately retiring in December, then leaving the Republican Party because of the direction it took under Trump after the election. Mitchell's wife, Sherry, saying in a statement that, quote, Paul stood up for what matters most. It had nothing to do with political ideology and everything to do with keeping our humanity for everyone. And while Mitchell's time in office was short, his fight to preserve a fair and functioning democracy will be his legacy. May his memory be a blessing. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead Scene. And our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 